Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Think you can tell the difference between male and female hummingbirds? Most of the time you probably can. It's maybe an odd question to ask this time of year when there are so many young birds that in many, perhaps most of the ABA area hummingbird species tend to resemble the female birds, but that is not always the case. From the journal Current Biology, a study that looks at white-necked Jacobins, Jacobins, it's a widespread hummingbird species in the tropics. If you've birded anywhere between Southern Mexico and the Amazon, you're probably familiar with the flashy blue-headed males with the snowy bellies. They are regulars at feeders and in gardens. As with many species, the female white-necked Jacobin, I'm going to go with Jacobin, tends to be more subdued. But unlike a lot of species, all juvenile birds, all young birds, look more like the males. That is the first odd thing about white-necked Jacobins. Jacobins. i got to make a decision on that one. The second oddity is that a not insignificant number of the female birds, up to 20%, so one in five, retain that male plumage. And as they come into their adult appearance, these female birds look like male birds. In fact, they are indistinguishable, to our eyes at least, from the male birds. Of course, the question is, why does this happen? Well, and other species that have these sort of cryptic sexes, there's usually a mating explanation in rough. Perhaps you've heard of rough, the flashy European shorebird. A certain percentage of male birds have the appearance of females, so they can kind of hang around the edges of the breeding leks and mate surreptitiously with the females without getting chased off by the territorial males, which are those kind of fancy ruffled plumage birds. It's very scandalous. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Jacobins. The researchers did some clever modeling with some stuffed mounts and GPS tags, and they found that in these birds, it was all about aggression. As you know, hummingbirds are notorious jerks, unrepentant SOBs, every single one. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this if you are not yet aware, but I'm sure you've seen a hummingbird feeder. You know how they are. And as it turns out, the males are especially aggressive towards females. Maybe that comes as less of a surprise. But it turns out that the females that are in fact the cryptic males, the females that look like males, were harassed far less often than the typical female birds. So they were able to feed at flowers, at feeders, about 35% longer. Which, for hummingbirds, with that incredible metabolism, that can mean a lot. So the story here is that looking like a bully makes you less susceptible to the bullies. I'm not sure there's anything you want to take from that. Uh, seems like I'm arguing that peer pressure work, which probably is not the heartwarming life lesson you want to take from the story, but honestly, hummingbirds, they are anything but heartwarming. Unless you think this is just a Jacobin thing, it turns out that a quarter of the world's hummingbirds have some females that look like males, presumably for similar reasons. So that colorful male visiting your feeders might not be. 
On the show this week, speaking of hummingbirds, perhaps you heard about the Mexican violet ear in northern Illinois that attracted a lot of attention lately. Greg Nice had a chat with the gracious homeowners, Jason and Gina Martinucci of Mundelein, Illinois, about what they thought when the rare bird circus came to town. But first, it's molt season. And if molt is a four-letter word for you, perhaps Danny Kashubi of the Institute for Bird Populations can straighten you out. She's with me to demystify molt, or at least make our best effort to do so. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of August 2021. Well, the first is not from August, it's from back in May, and it goes to show that notable bird records can come from just about anywhere, in this case, iNaturalist. So way back in May, a birder reported an unusual flycatcher from Corpus Christi, Texas to iNaturalist that ended up languishing there for months as an unidentified impidinax. Until a few days ago, someone came along, found it, and noticed that it was, in fact, an Alania, another genus of neotropical flycatcher that is about equal to impids in terms of identification difficulty and frustration. But the photo was good enough, showed the triple wing bar that more or less confirmed it as a small-billed Alania, an austral migrant found primarily in South America and never before confirmed, confirmed, in the ABA area, although in Alania in Chicago, Illinois, in April of 2012, is pretty widely thought to be this species, notably both spring sightings. It's a good time for an overshooting austral migrant, as it's the southern hemisphere autumn. It would be a first record for Texas, though, which is notable in and of itself. It's also been a good few weeks for short-tailed albatross off the west coast of North America. A recent sighting off Tofino, British Columbia, comes not all that long after birds seen in late July off of Westport, Washington and Monterey Bay, California. This is the rarest of the North Pacific albatross species, but has been increasing in recent years as the breeding population on their nesting islands in the Japanese archipelago slowly increases. It's actually a really nice conservation story. That's all we have for you this week for the entire roundup. Check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba. You can also get the information as soon as it happens at our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group. It's called ABA Rare Bird Alert. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It is the time of year for messy birds. You might be noticing bald cardinals, hummingbirds that look like they just came out of a washing machine, vultures with wings that look like a first grader's smile. It's molt season, and nearly every bird you encounter in the late summer and early fall is replacing something. Even though we are familiar with molt in theory, it's still kind of a confusing and intimidating process for many birders in practice. Danny Kashubi is the MAPS coordinator and bird banding guru for the Institute for Bird Population. She has top banders, the ins and outs of molt. For decades, she joins me today to demystify molt, or at least make a run at doing so. Welcome, Danny. It's it's really great to talk to you. Thanks, Nate. It's great to talk to you too. When you first started banding birds, what was your sort of conception of molt? Was it an intimidating concept for you? Well, when I started bird banding, it was a long time ago, and um, we didn't know nearly as much about molt as we do now. So we concentrated on other things like breeding condition and the general look of the feathers, but we didn't have the greatest concept of all of the details of the processes that we do now. Lots and lots of them has been learned over the last decades about all the processes, what birds do what, and how we can look at them in North American species. It's amazing how many leaps and bounds we have made since I started. 
Yeah. Have, have you been involved in a lot of that kind of learning process, the work that you've done, or even, you know, it's an active science. So you're kind of learning something and then immediately you have to sort of turn around and start letting other bird banders know. Exactly. Um, I have to say, I, there are many, many people out there um, teaching and learning more about this and cutting edge. And so I take all of the things that they've learned and published. And my job is instead of making leaps and bounds on that research is making it not scary yeah. because that's huge. People are so scared of it. And so I like to make it small words and think about things like we think about in um, our everyday lives and just make it not so scary. Because if I can make it not scary, then so many more people can grasp it and apply it to the birds they're handling and seeing in the field. Yeah. So do, do you think that that's that sort of, I don't know, perceived complexity or, or difficulty of working with it that is the hang up? Um, yeah, sometimes I think people look at the pile guides and just like immediately check out. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> It's scary. It really is. It's that big book. That big black book is very, very scary. And it's not written like a novel. You can't Mm -hmm. sit down and Mm -hmm. sit. There's a lot of terminology in there, a lot of shorthand so that it's not, you know, it's not a full encyclopedia volume and we can take it in the field. So a lot of shortcuts are taken there and demystifying those shortcuts and making people understand the terminology and what words are important. Mm -hmm. That makes it's so much easier to use that book and get over that fear and scariness of molt. Yeah. Can you sort of lay out the process of how an average passerine, to the extent that there is an average passerine, how their, their plumage changes over the course of a year? So um, there is an average, but every rule has an exception. Every single <laughs> exactly. rule has an exception. Yeah. So we're going with an average and there's going to be someone out there that says, that's not how I see it, but that's okay. Yeah. So, um, Every year, birds go through at least one molt, and we have named that one the pre-basic molt. And birds with kind of basic plumages, those you know birds that look the same all year round, mm-hmm. like a chickadee, they just do that one molt every year. And they do that usually in the fall, sometimes in the winter, but usually at the end of the breeding season is when they go through that. And they change their feathers, and they do it slowly through time. Then there is usually a second molt, um, um, for the, I call them fancier looking birds, but, um, <laughs> things that look fancier in the summertime have brighter colors. Yeah. Like your wood warblers or your, uh, I don't know, blue grosbeaks beaks and buntings and things like that. And the tanagers. Yeah. yeah Those tanagers, beautiful yeah. looking ones. They usually go through a pre-alternate in the springtime, which is, um, it's, they don't call it the breeding um, one because it can be used for different purposes in different groups, mm-hmm. but they go through a spring molt. So these birds, they're always changing their feathers in the fall, and then some of them change their feathers additionally in the spring just to spiff up for breeding. Yeah, the whole concept of like alternate versus basic has always been one that struck me as sort of backwards, though it does make sense when you think about like a, a basic plumage as a plumage that a bird holds for most of the year. Um Correct. Yeah. Alternate is, is only for like three months, but because our brain sort of thinks of, you know, that's the time, those are the months that the birds are out there and singing and most prominent. We think of that as like the main plumage when that's not really the case. Correct. And we see all of these birds with these alternate plumages. Most of them aren't here in the wintertime. Yeah. So yeah. we only see them in that beautiful, brilliant plumage. Maybe a couple of weeks we see them in that more dull plumage, mm-hmm. but we see them in that brilliant plumage. So we think they look like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how our brain kind of tricks us on that sort of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the, what do you think field birders don't know about molt that they should know about molt? Oh, um, 
I think that they don't understand necessarily, I guess the first concept that we just talked about is that we get these birds in the springtime and they're all these brilliant colors, Mm -hmm. but that's not their main molt of the year. Their main molt of the year happens in the fall when they are refreshing all those feathers. And that molt is so very important, not just to how they look, but to their entire lifestyle. Yeah. It allows them to thermoregulate properly, allows them to be aerodynamic when they have to migrate. It just keeps, the feathers are so important to their existence that we 100% need this change every year. When you're talking to field birders about molt and how to kind of understand it, is that different at all from how you approach the concept with like a bird bander? I do, because you get to see so many different things when the bird is in your hand. When you're in the field, you get a a big picture and you get to see um, the the general idea. But when it's in your hand, it almost changes exactly how it looks. You can see the individual feather tracks. Mm -hmm. You can see individual feathers. And you can see what happens underneath that big fluffy outer coat. You can't see everything when it's in in the field, but you can see it when it's in your hand. Yeah. It just amazes me how people who are actually usually quite good field birders, when they're looking through the binoculars, when it gets to be in their hand, sometimes they're like, I don't know what this is. It's so true. It's because, yeah, it just changes so much. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've worked with a banding station here uh, near where I live. It's a year-round station that's associated with a, um, one of the local museums. Um, and they have this field station and they go out and they ban birds a few times every year and just kind of, it's, it's more like a, like a basic census of what is there rather than any sort of like long-term scientific focus. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the fall you get like these sort of younger birds or birds that, as you say, are sort of coming into their, their basic, their winter plumage. And, um, you get them in the hand and you're like, you don't have those cues like behavior cues habitat cues any of those things that you realize that you use to identify birds and sometimes they can be like really confusing <laughs> absolutely you know and the shape changes because oh, you've yeah, got yeah. your hand yeah so many things change but i will give birders especially new birders i think the more you bird the better you get at this sort of thing mm-hmm. but the tails bird tails i think are highly underrated <laughs> as identification yeah um because that looks the same all year round. And um, there are quite a few diff- unique patterns to the tail. Do they have a white spot? Do they have a notch? Do they have um, a, a bar across it? And birders tend to be looking at the whole bird when they can use that tail to, to their advantage. And I think it's an underrated field marking. Yeah, totally. Um, is there a particular you know, molt strategy of a bird or a particular plumage uh, of something that you've worked with uh, that you find really interesting? Um, well, I, ha- I don't know. I find them very interesting. I love to teach with them because mm-hmm. they are, are bold patterns. I love to work with thrushes because oh, yeah. everyone has seen a robin and they have seen the spotted robins when they're babies. Yeah, yeah. And then we can think about all the thrushes have those spots, the bluebirds, the, the Swainson thrushes, the hermit thrushes, all of those thrushes have those spots. And then, but you can still see those spots through binoculars oftentimes, and they retain them on the wing coverts. And when you have them in the hand, you can still see that there's still a few spots left. And so I love to use thrushes um, when I'm teaching because they're, they're nice big birds. They're, they're not intimidating. They often sit in open spaces where they're not, you know, hiding behind a leaf. And you're like, what the heck is that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I love thrushes for that reason. Yeah. When, when you're out setting up a, a banding station, do you sort of go in there thinking about what 
potential challenges, what potential molt you're going to see at any given any given time or place. You've probably banded birds all across the continent. Um, do you have to kind of reconfigure your mindset and your expectations based on where you are and when you are? The patterns are pretty consistent through many of the species. So I don't generally tend to think of that when I'm setting up a banding station. Mm-hmm. The thing I think about when I'm setting up a banding station is, can I catch a lot of birds? Um, <laughs> there's nothing worse than setting up a bunch of nets and having yeah, nothing caught. Nothing. That's yeah. just, and I just get excited with whatever molt comes my direction. So, yeah. so we talked a little bit about the the pile guide and is sort of this, uh, this big, frequently intimidating sort of handbook. I guess it's more of a handbook. It's more like an encyclopedia of uh, molt, especially for for passerine birds and, and near passerines in uh, in North America. Um, how do you approach that guide? How do you use it? And what are some of the some of the molt tips that that someone might be able to find kind of hidden in in its pages? So first, when I'm teaching it, I tend to tell people stories about how what the terminology means and where the terminology mm-hmm. came from so that they have those words already in their head even before they open yeah. the book. Then when they have those words and they see them like, oh, this is the word that came from this story. I know where it came from. I know how it came to be. And so then when I'm using the book, the book is set up very rigorously into sections and the patterns that it's set up in so that I know exactly what, even if it's a bird I don't see very often, I know where to look in the book. Mm -hmm. And I usually look at the molt section so I can see what patterns I can look at, um, where um, there'll be cues in the feathers that will tell me what the age is. So I start in the mold section, give it a quick review just to see where the exciting bits on the bird will be mm-hmm. to help me age. And then I often look at the age sex section to to find out what colors they'll be and maybe what shapes they'll be. So I, those are the two sections that um, I tell people to focus on. And I have a number of steps like there are lots and lots of thoughts in there. So I tell people to slowly look at one thought, stop for a second, process that, mm-hmm. look at your bird. And then as people get better and better, they can look at more than one thing. But when you are a beginner, you really you can't look at all the things at one time. It just it makes your brain explode. Yeah, it's a lot. What, what stuff in those in the pile guides do people tend to have the, the biggest hangups with, have the biggest problems with? Well, there's so many there's so many term, there's so many pieces of terminology. Yeah. And if they don't necessarily know, they need to know that terminology first. And if you don't need to know that terminology, there's there's words in there like it's a partial molt. And if you don't know what a partial molt is, you don't have a picture of that bird. And you think, oh, I can, it's just part of the bird molt. So it's no big deal. But when you say it's partial, it is very specifically defined as to what that means. And so if you don't understand that, then a lot of the rest of the important information is a wash. So yeah. you really do need to know your terminology um, and it's very handily put on the inside back cover of the book so that if you don't know, you can always go back and say, oh, that's what that means. And then that helps people dig into the depth and the meat of the pile guides. Yeah. yeah. What do you think that uh, field birders can learn from paying more attention to the molt in the birds that they see? Are there identification clues that looking at a bird's molt or looking at the way its wing feathers are being replaced that will make a bird's identification easier than it might be otherwise? Um, some of the times it's not necessarily how the bird molts that will help you age it, but mm-hmm. you can learn a lot about its life cycle. So if the bird is molting flight feathers, you can see it's molting its wing or its tail. Usually those are older birds and you get an yeah. idea of what stage of life and existence those birds are in when it's maybe got kind of a, 
porcupiney body looking thing, but all the wing feathers are in. Oh, that's a young bird. So mm-hmm. we have young birds moving through. We can see what part of the life cycle it's in. Some birds molt on the summer ground. So you can say, oh, this bird was just breeding and I know it's done and it's finished its breeding for the year and now it's going to start moving through. So for field birders, um, it gives you a real picture as to where in the bird's life cycle it is. Yeah. I remember um, one, you know, example of molt being really useful for identification, at least where I live in the Southeast, is uh, is in crows, like American crow versus fish crow. And I, I don't know if this is, this is one thing I heard from a from a, 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 one of my kind of early mentors of birding, and it's like American crows molt first. And so if you see a crow flying around and like, july or august then it's missing some wing feathers then it's likely an american crow uh but if you see a crow molting i don't like in september october then it's likely a fish crow i don't know how useful that sort of thing is obviously it's always nice to have them calling at the same time and maybe that helps as well (laughs) but um you know that sort of thing always struck me as like really really interesting and almost like magic like knowing these birds life cycles in their years is is such a kind of a cool tip. I mean, not that American crows or fish crows are particularly uncommon where I live. They're both, you know, very common, but, you know, knowing about the world that these birds are sort of existing in, I found, I find really, really, really neat. Yeah, it is. And then in the West, the same thing with the Hammonds and Dusky flycatchers. Those two species are crazy. And one bird molts on the summer ground, so you can see it molting now, and one bird molts on the winter ground. So if you see it molting, you can tell which one it is. I agree. It is a really handy thing for identification of those really similar species. Yeah. You've been a bird bander for a long time. I want to talk a little bit about kind of your bird banding experiences. What what is sort of your favorite thing about about banding birds? Well, who else gets to hold these amazing creatures? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's the I, obvious one. Every, <laughs> every time I have one in my hand, I'm like, this is a privilege that nobody else gets. I mean, to me, it's amazing to have them in my hand. And you can really learn so much about a bird just by having it in your hand. You mm-hmm. can decide how old it is. You decide what sex it is. I mean, if you have a catbird in your hand versus a catbird in the bush, you can tell so many more things when you have that bird just in your hand. Um, and now we have so many more things once we have those birds in hand. We can we always put a band on them, but now you can take a blood sample and find yeah. out about its DNA. You can take a feather sample and find um, about its isotopes and where it winters. And you can attach a geolocator and see yeah. actually catch it again another year and see where it's been. I mean, there's so many things that you get when you get a bird in your hand. Yeah. Um, you know, you talked about early on, there was you didn't take as much information when you first started banding versus what you are getting now. Yeah. So what what is the process? You've got the bird. Like, what are all the things that you do with the bird now that are different than what you did back when you started bird banding? So um, I started I started a long time ago. And um, the pile guide at that point in time was about three quarters of an inch thick. And it was a little red book. <laughs> the pile pamphlet. <laughs> exactly. It was amazing because I learned about looking at skull, which um, oh, yeah. in a passery, when they come out of the nest, they have a single layer of bone. And then when they're older, they have two layers of bones. And you can see when you part the feathers and look through the skin, you can see whether it's a single layer or two layer. Hmm. Um, so you can tell the age of the bird by that. We would look at breeding conditions. Condition. We would look and see if the feathers were molting, but didn't really know much about, you know, what that meant. Um, and feather wear and things like that. That's all we looked at. And now the majority of our time is spent looking at how those feathers are molting or did molt. Hmm. So a lot of times in the summertime, they're not actively molting, but we can see which feathers were put on in the nest 
and which feathers were put on later. And between looking at the two different shapes and densities and colors and quality, we can tell how old those birds are. Wow. And how accurate can you be on that? For some species, you can be very, very accurate. Um, I love indigo buntings. I love to look at indigo buntings um, because there's such a vivid marked difference between the older feathers and the newer feathers. And I would say 99% of the time you can tell on an indigo bunting. Wow. But if it's something like a song sparrow, it's much more difficult. And depending on the race of the song sparrow, like if you're working in the Pacific Northwest, those song sparrows are much harder to work with. Huh. Their their colors are much more similar than to a song sparrow in the Southeast. Yeah, I was going to say, is it like the vividness of the blue in an indigo bunting that increases as the bird gets older? And that's kind of a harder thing to tell with a kind of a the song sparrow that's more or less kind of rufusy brown? Yes, 100%. And in an indigo bunting, the feather shaft color changes on the primaries and the secondaries in the tail. Um, So in the young birds, the ones that come out of the nest, it's a brown. And then as it gets the first set of adult feathers, it's a black with the feathers have been a blue edging. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really nice species to work with because you get these colors that people can see. Yeah. What is the most unusual thing that you've captured in a net? What is the most surprising maybe? Um, the first thing that came to mind is, um, I caught a Chuck Will's widow one time and I walked up and it opened its mouth and it hissed at me and I, (laughs) it changed in my sight from a bird with feathers to a snake. Um, it was amazing how that hiss just changed everything. And then when I did take out of the net, it was the nicest bird ever, but that hiss didn't just it was the scariest thing for a few seconds there. <laughs> That's surprising because they're like, like shockingly large too. If you've never actually yeah. seen one, like 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 yeah. I don't know, it's like sharpshin hawk sized or even even bigger than that. And a sharpshin hawk is a little tiny thing, but like they're they're you wouldn't expect like a a bird like that to be as big as it is. <laughs> right. It was it was just a great experience all around. I really I really loved it. Um, I have banded in quite a few places, so I have seen some pretty amazing things. Um, Mm -hmm. This year seemed to be the year of the golden wing, blue wing um, warbler complex. We got a lot of Brewster's and Lawrence's warblers. And those are always fun because, you know, they're kind of like a mystery. Which bird do they look, which species do they (laughs) look most like and, and checking out their different feather tracts. Yeah. Danny Kashubi is the bird banding guru for the Institute of Bird Populations. She has taught more birders about molt than just about anyone. And now you listener can count yourself among that number. Thank you so much, Danny. This was a real pleasure to talk to you. It's been great, Nate. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, I'm Greg Neese, and I'm joined today by Jason. Jason and his wife, Gina, were wonderful hosts when last week a Mexican violet ear showed up at their backyard feeder in Mundelin, Illinois. Jason, I think that was what, uh, Friday you said. What happened? Tell, start from the beginning there. Yeah, so it uh, when we first noticed that there was a um, a bird that didn't quite look like the other hummingbirds was was that Friday. Uh, I think it was August twentieth. Um, we I had been working from home that particular day, so I was able to uh, sit closer to my deck and uh, kind of watch the activity in the yard. Um, and like I said, we I noticed pretty quickly that the 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 hummingbird was was different from anything else that I had ever seen before, and that was primarily. <laughs> and they <due> really to, <laughs> are. Yeah, it was. It was really uh, what it first had to do with was was the size of it. It was just uh, significantly bigger than any other hummingbird I've ever seen. So right off the bat, I was like, "That is the biggest hummingbird I've ever seen." <laughs> so it, it caught my eye, um, 
and I, I work uh, close to uh, where the bird feeder is on our deck. So I was, I was actually pretty close to it at the time, maybe only 15 feet away. So um, when I, when I realized that something was different about it, I, I grabbed my binoculars, I grabbed my Peterson field guide and went out on the deck um, to see if I can get a closer look. By that point, um, I this maybe I'd seen it a couple times come to the feeder, and it was kind of in this uh, pattern where it was visiting the feeder every ten to fifteen minutes. So it, it was there with a with a lot of frequency. So I went out mm-hmm. and sat on the deck and waited for him to come back and grab my binoculars, and was able to get a, a much closer look at him through through my binoculars. Um, and then was able to actually snap a few photos uh, with my iPhone through the the lens on the binocular. Um, and at that time, I, I know I, I knew for sure that it was it was definitely not a ruby throated. Um, yeah. And I and I started flipping through the the Peterson field guide to see if there was anything in there that I could uh, match it to or or some way to ID it through there. Um, and the closest thing that I could see in there was the it was labeled as a green violet ear. Um, right. So I just, I, I kind of pursued that a little bit further um, just by Googling and was able to pull up some images uh, and kind of confirm that that had to be it. I mean, I, I couldn't right. couldn't really um, see what else it could be. So um, I sent those photos to a, a close family friend of ours um, who has been a pretty avid birder for, for many years. Um, he responded almost immediately saying, yeah, that's definitely, <laughs> that's definitely something uh, different and unique. Um, he was traveling at the time, so he, he wasn't, he didn't have a, a ton of time to look into it, but sent it to um, some of his birding friends and uh, responded uh, not too much uh, later in the afternoon, um, exclaiming the bird, the bird nerds are going nuts. <laughs> so um, yeah, they, they were. Yeah. And uh not long after that, I, I got a phone call from him, um, and one of his friends asked if she can come out and see it in, in person. So I said, absolutely. Um, and then uh, the following day, so she, she called me again in the morning on Saturday. Uh, she was driving several hours um, to get here, uh, so she wanted to make sure that he was still visiting the feeder, and he was. I was actually on the phone with her, and he was coming into the feeder all morning long, every 10 to 15 minutes. Um, so she nice. made it out here, um, and almost immediately was able to observe him. And, um, after that, it kind of spread like wildfire, fire, um, they, <laughs> everyone was very respectful and very kind and, and they kind of, uh, laid it out for me, how they, how they think I should approach it with regards to, uh, telling people, um, right. because obviously if it had gone on social media, there would be potentially several hundred people here. Um, right which being a residential neighborhood probably wouldn't be the best. Uh, no, I, I was there. And I think once you got past 10 or 12 cars, that was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yes. So it, it kind of just spread from there and it, and it became a, a word of mouth thing, which I, I think was great. It was, uh, it kind of, I, I guess the term would be spread organically um, through word of mouth. Yeah. And I, and you know, I, there, there was, uh, I, I was out there talking with Gina a bit and some other uh, some other people Sunday morning mm-hmm. and um, your yard, your setup was wonderful and it was great. And you, you know, I think there were 20 or 30 people there when I was there and we were talking about, okay, so if this bird sticks around, what's the next step? How do we, yeah. you know, work it with you guys so that people can come to see this. And you were, 
yeah, again, so graciously open to having that happen. Um, but then the bird kind of took that all away from us <laughs> and left. He <laughs> so really did, yeah. It, that afternoon, it was gone. Yeah, he uh, he started becoming more and more scarce um, throughout the afternoon on Saturday, and I think he was visiting a uh, a neighboring feeder. Um, yeah, and probably a little more quiet over there. There was a lot more um, tree cover, so perhaps he was a little more comfortable um, well, over there. This this species is notorious for being a one day wonder. They show up and then they just vanish and they don't mm-hmm. stick around. Um, and that you had one that would stick around for basically 36 hours yeah. uh, was, was really amazing. And um, I just want to thank you again for allowing birders to come and see it. It was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful sighting for a lot of us. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was also wonderful to meet all, all the uh, people in the birding community. There's, there's a lot of passion there and um, everyone was just so happy to, to be able to experience it. So for us to be able to share that with, with others um, who would appreciate it was, was important to us. And um, I think, to, I mean, we were able to take it even a step further and, and uh, Gina, my wife who works for the Forest Preserve, um, set out a donation box. Um, yep. And everyone was, was very gracious with, with donations and we were ra- able to raise a, a significant amount um, for the uh, Forest Preserve's affiliated nonprofit, um, which is the uh, Lake County Preservation Foundation. Um, oh. So uh, that was that was just another cherry on top to, to a wonderful situation. We, we were able to spin it and, and, and raise some money for um, hopefully for conservation and, and uh, uh, habitat rehabilitation and education in the future. So that is really fantastic. That is really fantastic. And thanks again. I uh, hope that you're, you're continuing watching your feeder and uh, getting a lot out of it. Absolutely. Yeah, this is uh, I, I wouldn't it's somewhat of a life changing moment for me. And I, I can fully intend to continue uh, uh, observing what I can and, and learning so as much a- as I can. Uh, on the edge of being a birder <laughs> i think i think i'm right there i'm teetering on the edge of it. Yeah. <laughs> right on. well welcome to the club yeah thanks thanks the american birding podcast is brought to you by the american birding association if you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it you can join the aba you get great magazines discounts to our partners and travel opportunities from aba staff and friends to learn more about it including our e-memberships you can check out aba.org slash join I have some shout outs to make this week to Shane Carroll and the Carrolls of St. John's, Florida, Carrie Frederick of Bellingham, Washington, Thomas Bodley of Eugene, Oregon, Kimberly Snyder of Keene, New Hampshire, Sarah Gunton and the Gunton household of Columbia, South Carolina, Grant Winter of Nashville, Tennessee, and Josh Teagart of Bellevue, Washington, all of them recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you. It really is great to come every week and see that there are still people joining the ABA because of the stuff that we do here. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeff Gordon, who's quite fond of this new trend of lightweight binoculars because there's nothing worse than watching Jacobins with shaky bins. Tactical production is by John Lowry, who notes that when a wood warbler transitions from its colorful alternate plumage to its more subdued, kind of milky brown plumage, that's more accurately referred to as a chocolate molt. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who were so rude to me the other day when I was trying to speak Spanish, they claimed that I had a Mexican violent ear. You can find us online at aba.org or on social media as American Birding Association or ABA, make sure it is the right ABA. I had a lot of trouble 
coming up with anything in this spot this week, I'll be honest. But if you think these were bad, and they are, you should hear the alternate ones. Sorry, that's the definitive basic molt joke. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.